you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. It's really good to be with you this morning as we um, continue in the season of Advent. It's good to see a lot of faces of what I assume are family and friends of those who are, are presenting their children for dedication this morning. Really glad y'all can be with us uh, this morning. Uh, but we are in the season of Advent, which is the season leading up to Christmas in which the church spends time reflecting upon the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. We reflect upon and anticipate his birth as we celebrate his birth and his second coming when he will come to judge the world and to make all things new. Uh, We anticipate it, we rejoice in it, and, and we spend time thinking about all that it means for us that God has come into the world. We remember things like angels telling the shepherds in the field of Jesus' birth, telling them that, that they bring good news of great joy for all men. We sing about the coming peace that our Savior brings, about the redemptive nature of Christ's coming, the forgiveness of sins, the hope that is established because God has come into the world. And we have these images in our head that for those of us who grew up in the church or even just around those who celebrate Christmas, images of a sweet and innocent baby upon whom the salvation of the world is placed. We remember a faithful young woman and a kind and righteous young man in Mary and Joseph who willingly and gladly stepped into the story of God's redemption. We think of wise men traveling across a continent to greet a young king. We think of bright and shining stars and angels singing in the heavenly places. And all of these things are biblical pictures. They're the resounding images that we have of the Christmas season and of the coming of our Lord. And yet when we look at the book of Malachi, which Claire read a passage from this morning, the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, we're reminded that the birth of Jesus is a moment of peak tension for the world and for really all of the cosmos. We, we have all these images of sweetness and peace and hope and salvation, and yet when Christ comes into the world, it is the peak moment of tension for all mankind, for all of creation. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. This is God speaking to his people. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And then we read as it continues into into chapter 3, it says, Behold, this is the the Lord speaking to his people. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? In this season, we sing Things like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and come, thou long-expected Jesus. And yet, the prophet of God here is asking us if we are going to be able to endure it when he does come to us. Will you actually be able to endure the day of his arrival? 
Because when God comes to us, he will come as the God of eternity, the God of all righteousness, the God of all perfection. To us, a sinful people, our faults will be exposed upon his arrival. Our deeds will be revealed for what they are. The state of our hearts will be laid bare before the God-man. And so my question this morning as we prepare to look at the text more deeply is, is this. Is the Christmas story really good news of great joy? Should we be so glad that Christ has come? If this is the reality? If, if the prophet asks us who will be able to endure this day? Let's pray and then let's see what the scriptures say for us this morning. Father, we come to you this morning a people in need of your mercy, in need of your grace. I pray that regardless of how every man and woman and child came in this morning, that you would use your word to speak to our hearts and to our minds in such a way that we would be transformed by you, that we would see you for who you are, that we would experience the radical grace that is in your love. I pray that you would awake our sleeping souls to worship you more fully that you would call us to see Christ in all of his glory and his radiant perfection, and that we, though sinful, though undeserving, would be able to confidently sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, like I said, the, the book of the prophet Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And And it really gives us the last portrait of the people of God that we have in the scriptures before the life of Jesus. And the book was written about 400 years before Jesus was born. And the portrait we are given of God's people is one that I think we should take very seriously. Israel and the people of Israel were about 100 years past their return into the land That God had given them. They had been in exile in Babylon. And then, as some of you know um, from being here over the last couple of years, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, God sent his people back into the land and they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And so here they are about a hundred years after that, uh, after their return into the land. And they were experiencing peace in the land that God had given them. But what characterized the people of Israel, was not happiness as a result of this. Instead, what we find are a people who are unhappy, who are cynical. Because when they returned to the land in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, their parents and their grandparents had labored together in this beautiful portrait of of unity and trust in the Lord, and they labored together to rebuild the temple under the auspices of the promises of God for things like the promise that God would return in all of his glory to dwell in their midst. The promise that God would engraft all the other nations around them into them so that they would be a great and mighty people and and the nations would experience the covenant blessings of God. The promise that, that they would be this great nation that would bless all the nations of the earth like God promised their great patriarch Abraham many, many years before. And instead... A hundred years after their return to the land, their land was a humble place. Their crops were failing. Their prosperity was limited. And so they were a cynical people. 
They were a spiritually unmotivated people. They were a spiritually unfaithful people. Really, the Jewish people at the time of the prophet Malachi was a society adrift. Their patience for God to fulfill his word had begun to run out. They looked at the world around them, at their circumstances, and they began to throw accusations at God. And really, the book of Malachi is a conversation between God and his people where the people of God are accusing God of injustice, of not loving them, of not being faithful to them, of not being true to his promises, and God responding with real accusations of their unfaithfulness, of their infidelity to him, of their lack of love for him. Because what God exposes in the book of Malachi is that his people are cynical and proud and blind and hypocritical. And to put some context on that, what was going on in the days of Malachi is is fundamental to the problem in Malachi is that the people of Israel had profaned temple worship. And they had profaned it by not taking it seriously and not obeying God's laws as it related to temple worship. And that characterized itself primarily and they, they were bringing lame and dying and blind and sick animals from their flock forward as their sacrificial offerings. And the priests were encouraging them to do this. And this is a big problem because the, the law of God clearly asks for the first fruits of the flock for the best animals, for the blameless ones. And instead, they were bringing the animals that they would have killed anyway, the the ones that they would have cut out of their flock already, the ones that were already dying. They were presuming upon the grace of God and not taking his word seriously, not having reverence and fear for the things he commanded them, and they thought it's good enough to bring him something and and better than, than bringing him nothing. He should be happy with this. So that was issue number one. Issue number two is that they were withholding their tithes from the Lord. God outlines this in Malachi. He tells them that they have been keeping their wealth to themselves, that they've not been giving it generously to the Lord. They've not been seeking to build up God's house. And instead, they've been withholding their offerings from God. They were not sacrificial or generous. And the last issue was one that was both a spiritual and a societal issue, and that's that the people of Israel had forsaken the the sanctity of the marriage covenant that God had given them to enjoy as a family of families. And this was taking place primarily through Jewish men abandoning the wives of their youth for pagan women through adulterous relationships, then issuing divorce certificates to their wives that they married so that they could be married to these pagan women and then allowing the pagan women to bring their household idols, their ancestral gods into their homes and often begin to worship those gods either alongside worship in the temple or forsaking worship in the temple to take up the idolatrous practice of their wives who were who were wives of adultery to begin with. And this is a big issue, and it's an issue, one, because the biblical standard for marriage in the Old and New Testament is that God's people are to marry other people who are faithful to God, who believe in the God of the Bible. 
And this isn't because God wants to expose racial or ethnic bias. It's because it's a spiritual and covenantal necessity, and it's a societal good. And here's why it's both of those things. First, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, wanted people to multiply and fill the earth with more Yahweh worshipers, and that takes place in households made up of Yahweh worshipers. Which, how appropriate on a day when we're bringing children forward before the Lord, right? Um, he, second, he wanted to protect his people from idolatry. He knew if his people married pagans that they would be tempted to and would almost certainly become pagans themselves. So he was protecting them from idolatry. Third, he wanted marriage to be a blessing. He wanted it to be a blessing to husbands and to wives and to children and to the nations abroad. And this would take place by the people of God being transformed by the word of God in their homes and in their society. But the men of Israel began this trend of leaving their wives for pagan wives. And this culture of adultery led to a spiritual adultery. And adultery in the Old Testament is always symbolic, not only for the the reality of adultery, but for a spiritual infidelity, for forsaking the God of our salvation to worship or cleave to other false gods, lovers less wild. And these are all big problems for God. His people have shown that their hearts are not set on him. Their worship isn't sincere. Their lack of spiritual zeal has led to a culture that takes advantage of women that is bad for children, that mocks the ways of God, and all the while, they are the ones complaining that God isn't coming to their rescue. And I I wonder this morning if you can identify with any of the sins of the Jews in the days of Malachi. Do you ever come to God in a way that withholds the fullness of your praise? Do you withhold generosity in your giving? Do you consider your circumstances or the world around you and begin to question God's goodness, his justice, or develop an apathy toward faithfulness? Do you ever presume upon the grace of God in a way that leads your devotion to him to being simply a going through the motions sort of thing where you secretly are holding on to all your little sinful pleasures and not bringing them before the Lord in repentance? Is your heart far from God even though you consider yourself one of his people? Are you ever tempted to take the standards that God has given you in his word and in his son and compromise them in order to participate in the fleeting pleasures of the world or to better assimilate into the culture you live in? Are you ever compelled to worship or believe in cultural religions and false gospels, maybe even including those that relate to the things that the Jews were dealing with in Malachi, like issues of marriage and divorce and sexuality. Reading these passages and preparing for this sermon, I I realize I do identify a lot with the Jews in the days of Malachi. In fact, this week as I was writing this sermon, I was in the midst of feeling a deep sense of conviction for my lack of spiritual zeal for my tendency to bring the equivalent of sick and dying offerings to God in worship. And and to be honest, the last few years of my life have involved a, a lot of suffering that have led to me saying with my mouth and believing in my mind in the goodness of God, 
But at a fundamental level, I haven't always been worshiping him or serving him as one who's overwhelmed by his love or his power or his holiness. So sometimes I show up and I give him my leftovers. Having given far too much of my attention and my heart to the cares of the world, whether things that worry me, things on my to-do list, my schedule, or even worldly distractions and sinful temptations. And so if I'm honest, when I've been considering this season of Advent where we await the coming of our Lord, it's been hard for me to want to hasten that day in my memory or in reality when he'll come again. Because what I know is that when I'm face-to-face with God, I will be exposed in that day. And I don't think I or the God of the Bible will really like what is revealed. But then I took another look at the book of Malachi. It begins with a statement just telling us what the book is. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. But the first real words of the book of Malachi are this. I have loved you, says the Lord. God begins this dialogue with a spiritually stagnant and unfaithful people, a people who offer him blind and dying animals in his temple, a people who abandon his own people in marrying pagans and through adulterous encounters, a people who thought God unjust, who accused him of not loving them, who accused him of all sorts of injustice, and he begins the conversation by saying, I have loved you. Let that sink in, weary sinners. God has seen you, and he has loved you. But there's more. It goes on in chapter 3, the verses we read earlier. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. I want to stop there and point out that God is giving his people way too much credit here. He's saying, the Lord whom you seek is coming to you. They haven't been seeking him. The the Lord in whom has given this covenant in which you delight, they haven't been delighting in the covenant of God, but he knows because they're his people that even if their sin has clouded their praise, even if their hearts are far from him, that in the depths of their soul, because he has set them apart, they desire him and they delight in him. And so Christian in the room, if you're feeling weary, if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling unable to bring the fullness of the praise, remember, God sees that ultimately you delight in him. Ultimately, you desire him. There is, your heart wants to worship you. He goes on, he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver And he will purify the sons of Levi, that's the priesthood, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So this is our focal point text for the day. And in it, God is saying that he sees his people in their sin and that he's going to come to them. He's going to come to their rescue. Now, on the whole, these people haven't been crying out, God, we need you. God, please help us. God, we want to obey you, but we're having a hard time doing it. We want to serve you with our whole hearts, but we're feeling overwhelmed. They've instead just been cynical and arrogant and unmoved, and still, he is coming to them. And he is not coming to crush them. 
He is coming to refine them. He's coming to purify them. He's coming to transform them through his love. So he's looking at a people who are unworthy, who are fundamentally undesiring of his love, who have done nothing to deserve his love. And he's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to change you into the kind of people that you were always meant to be. I'm going to refine you. Now, sure, if we read in verse 5, what we'll see is that God is also coming for judgment. That those who hate him and act wickedly with no remorse will be judged swiftly. But for those who need God's help, who need for God to change them, who need for God to enliven them, he has come to us in his son. In, verse, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the Lord goes on, he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out weeping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So, At the root of this, what God is saying is that when he sends his son into the world, this work of judgment and refining has begun, and that there are no people, no people for whom the incarnation of the Son of God does not radically affect. It affects every person who is on earth and who has ever been on earth when God comes into the world. Either there are those arrogant and evildoers who scoff at God and his promises and they will be made like stubble after a shave. They will be made like a fire, a forest after a fire with no root or branch. But for those who fear the Lord, even if your fear isn't what it should be, even if your worship is distracted and lacking, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, the text says. I love this. One, because the image of, of a cow leaping and skipping is like, it's an image that you can't help but be joyful thinking about. But also, if you know anything about caring for livestock and particularly cattle, what you know is that at times they can step on things that get lodged in their hooves and, and give this infection inside their hoof, and it can open like a big cavity inside their hoof that develops pus, and it gives them fever, and it makes them miserable, and so they'll, they'll be limping, and what they need is a good, patient, and loving farmer to take their hoof and to cut it open so that it can drain. And when it happens, if you've ever seen a video of this, which I have, what you'll see on the face of the animal is immediate relief because the farmer has been loving and has, has relieved their wound, has taken what was causing them to limp, and then almost immediately, they'll be able to skip out of the stall. And this is the image of what God is coming to do to us. He sees us as a limping people, a people infected with the heinousness of sin, and he is coming so that he can patiently, lovingly, and forcefully transform us. Brothers and sisters, the Son of God has come into the world. And when he has come into the world, he makes himself to be a wonderful and terrible mirror to look into. And what I mean is that when we look upon the Son of God, we will see ourselves in all of our filth. His perfection will expose our faults. 
His mercy exposes our selfishness. His love exposes our hatred. His generosity, our selfishness. His forgiveness, our bitterness. His passion, our apathy. And yet he has not come in order that our faults or our selfishness or our hatred or our bitterness or our apathy would remain. He has come to transform us. He has come to refine us. He says to his people, you who weep now, you will laugh. You who are hungry for righteousness, you will be satisfied. You who are poor in spirit, you will be blessed and the kingdom of God will be given to you. Our our Savior's birth, the images that we thought of earlier are really a beautiful foreshadowing of the redemption that he accomplishes in his death. In his birth, he was humble, lowly, quiet, and placed upon a structure for unglorified beasts. And even so, shepherds came to gaze upon his glory. Wise men traveled for months to greet him, and his mother treasured all these things up in her heart. His lowliness in that day was unfit for the God of creation. His estate in the quarter of animals was undignified for a king, much less the righteous savior of all mankind. And yet, he was priming us, he was preparing us for the images that will be given to us in his death. Because eventually he would be mocked and beaten and made lowly. Humbled to the point of death, yet silent in his suffering. Once again, he would be placed upon a structure for undignified criminals in the hour that the scriptures call the hour of his glory, which also was the hour of his death. What a marvelous mystery, that the hour of his glory is the hour of his death. And in that day, fishermen scattered, and yet soldiers marveled. And his mother endured the treasure that was in her heart as he made a way for our purification through his blood. And so through Jesus... This unbelievable thing happens where mercy and judgment are accomplished simultaneously. That that the coming of our Lord is the best news in all the world for those who fear him and the worst news in all the world for those who don't. So even in our sin and apathy and shame, we can look upon the God who has come to us, the God who has died for us, and we can confidently sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Why? Because he was judged for our wickedness so that we can have mercy, but more than mercy, so that we can have transforming grace. Because of Jesus and his radical love, his sufficient merit, his sacrificial death, the power of his resurrection life, we are invited to shake off our slumber that's in our souls and worship him fully. We can break free from our apathy and our shame. We can stop hiding behind fig leaves like our first parents did in the garden. And instead, we can bring faithful and sacrificial offerings like Abel did. We can bring him our praise and our first fruits. We can give radically because of what Christ has done. We can sing loudly. We can be transformed in the power of God's love for us from a people who have nothing to offer God, who can bring him offerings in full righteousness as we're united to his son. Why? Because he has loved us. I have loved you, says the Lord. 
He has loved us. We don't deserve it. We didn't even ask for it. But for those who look upon the Son of God and have a holy fear, a true faith, a a sense of their need for him, he has granted that we may skip like calves and come to him in confidence to receive all of his benefits. Who can stand in that day? Those who fear the Lord. Who can endure that day? Those who fear the Lord. Our estate is secure because he has taken the lot we deserve. So that day of his birth, that day of his birth and that day when he will return, both are great and terrible days. The scriptures say that that when Christ returns, we'll have to give an account for all of our thoughts and words and deeds. And if you're like me, that makes you a little sick to your stomach. If your thoughts or words or deeds are anything like mine. And yet, the Bible in the New Testament makes it clear that for God's people, we shouldn't fear that day. We should instead eagerly anticipate it, that our hope should be set upon it because God's love for us, his mercy for us, his refining, purifying work is so good and so powerful and so complete that even when all of our wickedness is exposed before him, his grace is so much greater than our wickedness that we can long for that day when we're fully exposed before the God who will say, you are forgiven, come and enter my rest. And so this morning, I invite you to welcome the Christ. Prepare him room in your hearts. You need him, and he wants to change you. It will not be a painless process. You will have to reckon with your sin. You will have to acknowledge your warts. You will have to see yourself in that divine mirror which exposes you fully for who you are. But also in that mirror is a picture of how glorious he is. And you will be free. And this is good news. And so for those of us who have maybe been apathetic or spiritually depressed or overwhelmed by the cares of the world or burdened by our circumstances, we have an opportunity this morning to rejoice in one of the most appropriate seasons to do so. And so as we close this morning, I'm going to invite Nick to come and play again for us. We, we don't usually have a time for responding in worship after the, the word is preached. But as I was preparing this morning, I was just thinking about the apathetic worship that the people of Israel were bringing and how many of us probably feel a sense of resonance with that. And I thought after hearing the good news that God has looked upon us, even in our apathy, and has loved us, that the only appropriate thing we could do is stand and sing and offer him our praise. We're going to sing from O Holy Night again, and and the invitation in the chorus to fall on our knees is an appropriate invitation. God has come to us. It says, who can stand in that day? Well, those who fear the Lord can stand with confidence But the reality is in that day, we will not stand. We will fall on our knees before our Savior who has loved us. So instead of closing in prayer, we will sing our prayers to the Lord together. Please stand. 